invite you to turn in the Word of God to the Gospel of Mark. Last week, we looked at a passage just prior to the one we're in this morning where Jesus rebuked people who were trying to impose rigid and flexible orders of worship upon a basic set of principles he intended to be able to flex with his people in different places and throughout the ages. So they were going beyond what the scriptures actually require, and not only going beyond it, but they were actually twisting their idea against the very principle, against the spirit for which God had ordained what he does in the word. Now we're seeing this morning as we continue in Mark, that Mark has gathered together ideas along a theme, and here again Jesus is going to take aim at practices that go against the spirit of God's law, at misapplications of what he has commanded. And we're going to read from verses 23 of Mark chapter 2 through verse 6 of Mark 3. So let's give attention to the word of the Lord. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's ask for his blessing. Father in heaven, we ask that you would please give us spiritual eyes to see the wonders out of your law that you desire us to live according to, soften our hearts where they are hard, give us encouragement where perhaps we have a wrong picture of you, majestic but tyrannical, when in fact you are merciful. We ask that you would help us to reflect in our lives the teaching of Jesus here, for we ask it in his name. Amen. This past week, I was speaking with Reverend Taylor Kern, who is a minister at Ontario URC, and we got to speaking about this passage, and he pointed out something to me that I thought was helpful. He 
drew attention to the fact that the way that this is structured, and I don't think Mark intended it to be structured per se like this, but it can help you, it's structured somewhat like a crime drama where initially what we see is there's some kind of suspicious activity. There's a possible crime. In this case, it's the potential that Jesus has in some way undermined God's honor by doing things on the Sabbath that the Pharisees say is wrong. So that's the potential crime. And then the next thing that we encounter are the Pharisees making an accusation. So now we're in court, per se. And the Pharisees stand up and say, this man has not honored God. He's shown contempt for the law of God. And then finally, what we have is Jesus rising to defend not only himself, but the disciples. And not only to defend himself, but to, in fact, make a counter-argument and an accusation that the Pharisees have not only misunderstood what God requires in the command concerning Sabbath, but they have weaponized this ordinance against its very purpose, which is to bless humanity, and in particularly, uh, particular to bless the people of God. And so when we consider this, on the one hand, that's the structure, but we have to bring it into our lives and recognize this is a temptation today. This is a temptation that you have probably faced, perhaps have fallen into in different ways, and that we as individuals and as a church will continue to face. When Jesus is teaching, it's not just that he was saying, oh, that's how it was back then with the Pharisees. Good thing they're all gone. The heart of formalism persists with us, and the Lord calls us to wrestle with that this morning. That is, when I say formalism, this desire to have convenient, clear, black and white, crisp check boxes that you can just go through and say, I did all the things, outwardly speaking, as if that's what God was most interested in. But when you have a formalistic heart, it's possible to fulfill your duties without even engaging your affection for the Lord and your compassion for other people. And here, the Lord, the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of all of the ordinances and commands of the Bible, is calling you, honor him and please him by applying all of the various rules and regulations of the Bible in a way that takes to heart their real purpose. And so that's what we're going to see this morning. Now, as we examine this passage, we're going to do so under three main divisions. I'll announce each of them again as we come to them. First, we need to see the case that the Pharisees make and to examine it a little bit, get some of the background about the Sabbath. So we're going to hear the case of the Pharisees. Secondly, we are going to look at Christ's counterarguments, and he's going to make four. And we, again, examine these not just to know what did Jesus think back then, but this gives you a framework for examining our own relationship to God's laws and commands. And then finally, we're going to bring it to bear in some particular ways on worship today and how we live. Now, first then, picture the Pharisees standing up to accuse Jesus in verse 24. It says, the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So they see the disciples as they are walking through the field, presumably on the way to or from synagogue. The next account is them at a synagogue, so perhaps they're walking to church, basically. And the disciples see grain growing, and they grab some, and they begin to eat it. And the Pharisees say, this is wrong. Now, what is their case that that would actually offend the Lord? Because for many of us, if you're not very familiar with the Old Covenant, 
or don't have some sense or admiration for what it teaches, you could immediately look at this and say, what case? I don't have a case. What would ever be wrong with grabbing some grain on one day out of the week? And so you have to understand the case that the Pharisees are making here. First, remember the background. The word Sabbath here, children, the word Sabbath basically means rest. It's to rest from some kind of labor or work. But more particularly, it's used in the Bible to describe ceasing from one kind of labor in order to consecrate ourselves, to devote ourselves, to give ourselves to the worship of God. Whether that's in public worship like this, or in their day would have been going to the temple or going to synagogue, or also in private contemplation of the Lord, personal dwelling upon, meditating upon, worshiping the Lord in our hearts as individuals. And so Sabbath is consecrating a portion of time to holy purposes. Now, where is that coming from? The Bible asserts that it was instituted by the Lord or exemplified at creation. When you read Genesis, it's structured such that for the first six days, the Lord is creating different things. He's giving order and structure to the universe. But then on the seventh day, after he's made man... He rests from any more creative work. He's no longer making new categories of beings. The argument is that because we as human beings are his image bearers, that is, we reflect him, we live out a life that exemplifies his character and nature, therefore, we ought to set aside one day in seven for special rest and contemplation of what God does. And it tells us on the seventh day, the Lord thought about everything that he'd done, and he said it was very good. And so the argument is that that's what we should be doing. One day out of the week, we should give ourselves especially to rest from normal work and to contemplate the Lord. But it's never an explicit command at that point. Until you come to Mount Sinai. Thousands of years later, God brings his people out of Egypt, he brings them to the base of Mount Sinai, and there he gives them what we call the Old Covenant. A covenant is a way of people relating together, a set of terms or promises, kind of like a marriage, or maybe when you buy a car or a house with a payment agreement, it sets the terms for how people relate. And in the terms given at Sinai, there is an explicit command concerning the Sabbath. Exodus 20, verse 8, which most of us have heard many times, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That is, keep it distinct from all the other days in a way that is consecrated to God. Don't just take vacation on Sunday. It's unto the Lord that you are resting. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, even the livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates." And so the Pharisees' argument is very simple. The command forbids mundane work, like harvesting. And plucking grain, is that not a form of harvesting? Therefore, what they're doing is forbidden. It's very simple. And in some ways, that might resonate with some of you. Like, yeah, I mean, that if you're going to apply this, that what's your argument against it? I... And there is something in us, I think, that really appreciates a very clear rule. And we appreciate that for several reasons. Some are good and some are bad. 
We appreciate it on the one hand because then it's easy to know how am I relating to God and to others. But there's a part of us that's fleshly that waffles between wanting no commands from God and on the other hand, wanting these really, really clear commands that are so mechanical that you don't really have to engage your heart in the act of worship. If the command is just show up at church, sit down, get up and leave at a certain time, if that was what worship was, there's a part of our flesh that would appreciate that, that I don't have to have a prepared heart when I give praise. It's simple, but the problem is it's simplistic. It's overly simple. As we're going to see, Jesus has a response, and he says, no, you have missed the purpose. And even the way that you have interpreted the Sabbath, it's just wrong. It is not as simple as saying, well, that's a form of harvesting, therefore you cannot do it. And so now at this point, Christ rises to defend himself and the disciples. And this brings us to our second major division. This will be the longest portion of the sermon as we look at four different arguments. How is he arguing? And the reason why you need to see each of these arguments is because they then need to be used for how you consider our duty. And how the consistory, for instance, weighs what belongs in worship, what exceptions should we make, These same arguments that Jesus is using have application beyond this one passage, and so you need to know and understand them. The first argument is the precedent set from David's eating the showbread. A precedent is just an instance where we've already come to the kind of situation and a ruling was given, and we can now examine the current case in light of that past case. Verse 25 of chapter 2, look again. Jesus says to them, have you never read what David did? When he was, there is something politely confrontational about that, by the way. Most of these Pharisees, many of them, would have memorized, memorized vast portions of scripture. To this day, there are Hasidic Jews who memorize the entire first five books of the Bible by age 13 as a goal. The human mind, when it is given regularly to memorization, is quite elastic, particularly in our younger years, much more than I think we would like to acknowledge, and it is a lot of work. But they were motivated, if anyone was ever motivated, it was the Pharisees, albeit by a lot of different motivations. And so for Jesus to say to them, have you ever read? He's not just politely asking, hey, you read the Bible sometime. He's confronting them, and already he's asserting authority and challenging them. The problem is you don't even know how to read. And he says, have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him. Now, you might not be familiar with the story there. David was on the run. He was being pursued by King Saul, who in a craze was jealous of David and wanted to kill him. David had done nothing wrong. And David has to flee so quickly, he doesn't even have time to grab supplies And he passes by the temple, probably, or not the temple, the tabernacle. Probably he wanted to stop there along the way to pray and seek God's blessing. And while he's there, he remembers they have bread here. Because bread was offered each week to the Lord as a symbol of the people of God. And then the priests alone could eat of that bread. And that was a picture of the way that God desired to have communion between himself and his people by means of a high priest. And this was pointing forward, ironically, to the very person now addressing the Pharisees here, Jesus Christ. And so David goes there and he remembers there's bread and it says, verse 26, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, 
and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Now, just to make it clear, if you were to go look at the passage where this takes place in the Old Testament, David doesn't go in there with a sword and say, give me all your bread. That doesn't happen. He asks the high priest, the highest official over all of the visible church at that time, and the high priest gives him and the men the bread. And that indicates that the priest had an understanding and made a ruling. That's why this is a precedent. He made a ruling that this was acceptable. Ordinarily, it was reserved for the priests as a religious picture, as a type, as a shadow. And ordinarily, that was good for the people of God to have that as something they could discuss and draw faith through. But in this circumstance, the duty to nourish the hungry was more fundamental, moral, and deeper. With Christ coming, the entire tapestry of Levitical laws and ceremonies goes out the window. They were external. They served a purpose. But the purpose was the blessing of the very people God loves. And here, feeding someone in need is blessing them. And so you don't take the external thing and use it against the moral, spiritual, abiding thing. And so Jesus argues it's permissible to suspend external ordinances to preserve life. Similarly, here in verse 27 of Mark, he says the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. God makes man first and then he makes the Sabbath and he makes it to be a day of renewal and refreshing. And that's what food is about. It's renewing and refreshing us in order that we might serve God with minimal distraction. If you want to test this out and try it out, try not eating dinner next Saturday night and then don't eat breakfast on Sunday morning. You could do that as a fast unto, unto the Lord, but will it be easier to focus in worship? Pro- probably not. You're hungry. And then try doing that for an extended time or try imposing that upon small children, upon the sick. So Jesus says the purpose of Sabbath is renewal, and there's nothing about plucking grain to or from synagogue, from church, that was in any way imposing upon or stopping others from worship, whether public or private. That's the first argument. The second is this, and it's found in a parallel passage in Matthew's gospel. Remember, uh, sometimes Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. That is, they largely follow the same story pattern, same structure, as it's kind of like three different cameras pointed at the life of Jesus. And you have cut scenes. They're telling the same story, but from different angles. And Matthew describes this in chapter 12, verses 5 through 7. Jesus asks this question. Have you never read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath by performing their duties and are yet guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. So he says, what what do you do with the priests? The priests are doing all kinds of work on Sabbath. Now, why are they doing that and what justifies it? It's because the requirement of temple worship was so high that anything that facilitated temple worship was acceptable. You don't turn the one against the other. Some things are needed, like somebody preparing the sacrifices and all of that. And Jesus says, something greater than the temple is here. The temple was a picture pointing to me. I am the temple. I'm the meeting place between God and man. I am God come in the flesh. I'm the nexus point between eternal reality, the personal God, and the way that you experience life in this created world. I'm the temple. 
And therefore, anything that facilitates glorifying me and meeting with me, how can that be wrong? Now, when you think about what that looks like in our practical life, I can think of many things. Just even coming here this morning, what kinds of activities were necessary to be here? You had to get dressed? Well, that's work. It is a necessary work that facilitates our worship together. I had to make breakfast. That too, and you're feeding and you're perhaps washing children. And then you come here and many of you are serving in different ways. Some are outside doing security right now. Are they profaning worship in order to provide an added layer of protection in a world that is dangerous? What about the people over there doing nursery? What about those who prepared snacks and those who are going to do Sunday school? There are all kinds of ways that people serve on Sunday, and that's not work that the Lord is not pleased with. That's a form of service and mercy that enables everyone to worship better. And so when you encounter that sort of thing, that's not wrong either. Then we come to his third argument, and this is that God himself performs work on the Sabbath. And if it was in every single case always sin to be active on the Sabbath, then God is guilty of sin. And so Jesus says, well, that's not correct. Another parallel passage in John chapter 5, verses 16 through 17. John 5, 16 through 17, Jesus says, or rather it says, because Jesus healed on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. But Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Yes, at creation, on the seventh day, he ceased from creating new categories of being. But that doesn't mean that he ceased all activity, because the Bible tells us by his word, all creation is right at this moment being upheld. God doesn't stop on each seventh day and just let the universe implode. He is always working. What about healing? Can you imagine if doctors were performing studies and they just noticed that there was this dip in the process of healing for 24 hours, one day a week, that bodies just stop healing? And I don't think as Christians we should be about to accept some hands-off, God just put these methods in the world. God works through his means, but it's God who brings about blessing, particularly with sinners. It's only by his active will that good things continue to happen for you. And yet he's healing every single Sabbath forever. And so how can that be contrary to his purpose for healing this man with a withered hand or, say, pulling a donkey out of a pit, as he describes elsewhere? And then here Jesus bolsters his argument in Matthew chapter 5 by quoting from the prophet Hosea. Hosea 6, verse 6 is what he quotes. Matthew 5, he says, If you had known what this means... I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. God says in Hosea 6.6, 6, at the height of temple worship, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now, he doesn't mean that he has no delight in forms of worship. He instituted them. But by contrast to the calling to love human beings, by contrast to that, he wants that rather than a heartless approach to, an inhumane approach to the outward forms. So that's the third argument. That brings us then finally, his last argument. The last argument I think is the most striking of them all. And it's the argument here that probably is the one that motivated them to go out and try to kill him. His argument is in verse 28. 
The Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Now we know when he says the Son of Man, he's referring to himself. Jesus loves to speak of himself by that name. I think in part because referring to Old Testament prophecy, this shows he is the second Adam and the representation of the new humanity. Also because wonder of the gospel, God delights to be associated with lowly human beings. Satan says, I will become like God. God says, I'll become like man. And I am the son of man. And salvation comes by the lowering, as it were, of God to our needs and level. By uniting his nature with our nature in the person of Christ, without having to mix either nature, but bringing them together in one person. And he says, the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Moses wouldn't even claim that. Moses, according to Hebrews, is just a steward over the house of God. He's a servant in the house. But the author of Hebrews says, Jesus is the Son and Lord over the house. He was there at creation. He's why there was a Sabbath. He spoke, and it was. It was his hand that paused from further creative work. All things were made through him. And so this is nothing less than an assertion that Jesus is divine, that he is the God of Israel now in the midst of them. Never let that be lost on you. Any person who says, well, I think Jesus was just you know, a, a teacher, had strong views, maybe a good teacher in some ways. I don't think he thought that he was God. But then over time, along hundreds of years, people came to think he was God. It's hogwash. In terms of scholarly records and arguments, I don't think a case can be made against the reliability of the early manuscripts concerning Jesus. If Jesus did think anything, he definitely thought he was God, and there's no better way to explain why they wanted to kill him. He says, I am the Lord, even of the Sabbath. As such, he has final interpretive authority. And that means any practice then or now has to be run through the filter of what has Jesus said? What has he revealed to us in his word? Whether through the Old Testament, the Gospels, or the Epistles. But Jesus has final interpretive authority. Moreover, that means that Christ has the authority to set aside, permanently or temporarily, any of these outward external ordinances. The morality never goes against itself. The ultimate principle is not against itself. But the external forms, these can be set aside. Jesus does that in a long-term way with the introduction of the new covenant. Think about some differences in Sabbath under the new that the New Testament just takes for granted. It really doesn't even spell it all out and draw it out. It's such a given that it just goes without discussing. We no longer are obligated to set aside Sabbath as sundown to sundown, as the Jews did, and that's what they were commanded to do. There's a lot of emphasis upon 24 hours, but we overlook the fact that what was literally commanded was sundown to sundown. That means seasonally it actually changed somewhat. Sometimes it's Closer and sometimes it's uh, less than 24. What if the church is in Alaska where the sun doesn't set for months on end? What if that's when Sabbath begins? The Lord knew when he set up the Old Covenant what he was doing for that period of redemptive history and he knew that as the gospel expands into all places that it would be appropriate to slacken some of the external forms of Sabbath. 
And so as our catechism says, we don't approach the Sabbath with a Jewish strictness that was appropriate to its time. The principles remain, but Jesus can do that in a permanent way as he has in the New Covenant or on a case-by-case basis. Exceptions can be made to the forms and the ordinances when it's against his will. And so these arguments, what do they show? They show Jesus was not in sin. There's one question that then remains as we come to conclude. That question is whether you and I are in sin, whether this church is in sin. And I say that not rhetorically. This is something that we continually revisit. We come back to again and again. So first, let me be clear as we come to conclude and bring this to bear on our worship, our way of handling God's commands. I am not at all intending to suggest that ordinances and commands don't matter or should be treated lightly. They absolutely do matter. Jesus and him through his apostles instituted ordinances and commands in the New Testament. Go into all the world, making disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to obey whatsoever I've commanded. That sounds like Jesus wants your life to fit a pattern. You don't just get to choose how you live, and I don't either. We are subject to this authority. And he gives us certain regulations for worship as well, about regularly gathering on the Lord's Day. That's the example Jesus sets. That's what the church does, and if you're going to gather publicly, you have to agree on times to do that. The command to practice the sacraments, and yet there are some who profess to be Christians who have never been baptized. We don't take them lightly. We take them seriously. However, on the other hand, we have to recognize something. The external forms have no inherent value. The value they have is the way that through God's grace, ordinarily they bring about benefit to his people. The external form is not the internal moral spiritual reality. You could say that it's kind of like the I before E. Children, there's a rule in grammar, a thing that you're going to have to deal with soon enough in school if you haven't already. But ordinarily, I comes before E. But then we learn there is an except after C. So sometimes there's an exception. Here C stands for circumstances where rigidly adhering to the letter of the law would actually lead to people being harmed. There is an except after C for every external form that we encounter in the word. I want to offer some possibilities for what that would look like. I state these as pastoral advice because the Bible doesn't explicitly state these. There's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. Ask the other elders their opinion on this. That's one of the reasons we work together by consensus in this church. But how could it be that we could rigidly impose rules in a way that harms people? A few that come to mind. One, by the way, in stating these, I'm not saying anyone has necessarily done these. I think that we should avoid them. The first is pressuring mothers and infants to attend public worship too soon after birth. In the Old Testament, the example that we have is that when a mother has a child, she's counted as unclean and therefore not able to participate in public worship for anywhere from 40 to 80 days. So one month to three months. There could be a pressure from within or maybe even from the enemy working upon a mother who feels like people are going to think something's wrong if I'm not back in worship after two weeks after I had a baby. That pressure is not, so far as I know, coming from the leadership of this church. Another could be A pressure to, say, attend the evening service when you have very small children or maybe you're a shift worker. The Bible does not command a second evening service. I am resolved to do it until I die, and nobody makes me. 
It's a joy to provide food for the flock of God twice. And that's not just because I'm a pastor now. I attended Oceanside URC for 10 years, and there were nights where there were five or six people at worship. By God's help, I was there regularly. Why? Because it's a joy to be among the people of God and to serve and to use our gifts. But on the other hand, if you have a two-year-old and you live 45 minutes or an hour away, as I know some of you do, you have to weigh whether or not it's more or less harm for your family to spend four hours in the car on a Sunday. Or maybe there's the opportunity for family worship at home in some evenings, or maybe there's a closer church. We're not the only true church. But then to hold that over others, like what's wrong with them? Again, a shift worker would be, I think, not recognizing the principle. God wants to bless his people and to feed them. And how can we do that well? And there may be other ways. Another is being critical of those who involve themselves in works of mercy, especially on the Sabbath. Those who, I know that there are some here who like to get involved in things like soup kitchens or food pantries. And then think of all the work the deacons do too. And I would submit to you, that's not wrong, provided we're not regularly neglecting worship, that we don't schedule those things in order to have nothing to do with our our obligations to the body of Christ. I think that that can be an ideal opportunity, something I wish that we did more of, that we had set aside Sunday and say, between services, I want to go help people who have some particular need, or I want to have people into my home. And yeah, that's a lot of work, but that's a good work. That's a blessed work. That's a mercy for others. And then finally, I want to exhort you to see where blind adherence to the letter of the law leads. Look with me again at Mark chapter 3. Where does it lead when we don't do that? 3 verse 1, the Pharisees, it says, they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Not so that they might lovingly correct him as a fellow brother and heir of the promises to Israel, which was their job not as shepherds who love the sheep. They were watching in order to accuse. And that is what our hearts do when we are, in a sinful way, doggedly adherent to the letter and not to the spirit. We start watching how other people live, not so that we can help them or out of concern to bless them or preserve the true purity of the church, but I want to know what's wrong with them so that I can feel that I'm very right. If that's your heart in one or another area, the Lord calls you, repent. That is not the heart of Christ. If you are not for others, even as you are against their practices, you are not walking in the grace of the Spirit. You have to be for them, even as you are against what they may do. And then moreover, verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Oh, how dare you work on the Sabbath by healing someone. But we're going to go have a work meeting right now and plot how we can kill you hypocrites, Pharisees. But this is, this is in us too. This is in us too. And the same morning that we could hear a sermon on the Sabbath and think to ourselves, you know, I really want to honor the Sabbath more, that same day we can walk out and forget it and immediately do things that if other people were watching us, they'd say, well, that wasn't necessary. How come you aren't focused on the Lord? My position as a pastor concerning the Sabbath, the longer that I am a believer, the more that I find joy, ordinarily, there are exceptions, that I find joy in spending as much of one day in seven unto the Lord. That I want to have things set up such that I don't have to do the mundane labor. But that's different than saying, 
we cannot, I'm going to hold it over others and be angry at my kids that this, and, and make my spouse feel like she's sinning because she did that one thing. The new covenant doesn't give us the same, even, even the temporal specificity for how to keep Sabbath. When we read our catechism, we find that there's no explicit statement of like a, a list of all the things you cannot do. Instead, we are exhorted, attend worship, abstain from all sin, glory in the Lord, seek mercy. And as we do that in a spirit of freedom, my observation is that we actually honor the Lord of Sabbath more. People in the URC, I have found, tend to be more joyfully Sabbatarian than some in traditions where there's a more specific rule. And perhaps it's because of the joy that they find in Christ. May the Lord help us in that. Let's ask for his blessing now. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word and teaching us through it. We ask that you would help us both to walk righteously and humbly with compassion and to recognize our own need to be forgiven because what was in the Pharisees in kernel, if not in blossom, is in all of our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.